Okay, well, welcome back, everyone. Welcome again if you're joining us online this morning. It's great to have you here with us. So get your Bibles this morning and turn them to Acts chapter 14, please. Acts chapter 14. And we will begin by reading the passage. It's uh, 28 verses, and we will read it and uh, see what the Lord has for us. The Word of God reads, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude both of the Jews and of the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these vain things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead." However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had reached the word, excuse me, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. And when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word this morning. Lord, your word is life, it's water to our our parched souls. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. And we rejoice, as the psalmist said, as one who has found great treasure as we consider your word this morning. So would you open it up to us? Would you reveal things to us? Would you speak to us? Would you speak to us as a church? Would you speak to us as the church? And would you speak to us as your sons and your daughters? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The title of today's message, I don't usually mention this at the beginning, is Persevering Through Obstacles. You may remember at the beginning of chapter 13 when these men were uh, in a room or in a place waiting upon the Lord. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 13 and just flip there for a moment, you'll see in verse 2 where it says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Lord in that moment, in that place, had spoken to them in a very dramatic way. And they heard the voice of the Holy Spirit collectively as a group. You know, we don't know, we're not told, was it an audible voice or was it just a sense of the Spirit that was given to them, but it was given to them in unison in some way that they were all convinced that God had spoken to them. And the voice of the Holy Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so they were called and they were set apart. And then it said in verse 3, Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So they were sent out, the first missionaries, from this church in Antioch of Syria. Now, there were a couple of Antiochs. There was Antioch of Syria, which is where this Gentile church was founded and became sort of the missionary church. And then there was the church in Jerusalem. But then as we read through this story, last week we came to Antioch of Pisidia, which was up in the region of of Turkey and Galatia, if you look at the maps in the back of your Bible. And so uh, not to get the two Antiochs mixed up, they had gone up to Antioch of Pisidia on this journey and they had gone through that. So now they're traveling over to um, Iconium. But there were six things that I saw in this passage around the obstacles or the difficulties that these men faced. And the first thing we really want to point out is this, that when we uh, become believers and when we're called to follow the Lord, you know, there are those out there who would preach what is known as a prosperity doctrine, a health, wealth, gospel. And a simple reading to me of the book of Acts debunks all of that. But these men, as God called them to go, they're on their first missionary journey where the Holy Spirit had spoken and given them a work to do and just basically told them to go and preach the gospel and plant churches. 
Uh, obstacle number one that I see was back in chapter 13. Remember, as they were traveling and they came to the island of Cyprus and they, they came upon this man, Elimus the sorcerer, who opposed them as they were trying to preach the gospel to uh, Sergius Paulus. And remember, as you go back and you read that, this man opposed them quite aggressively. But Paul, being emboldened by the Spirit, had to stand up and rebuke this man in front of everybody. And in the way that Paul rebuked him and because of the miracle that God did in sending blindness upon this man, and it says there in that accounting that a mist fell and sort of surrounded him, it was clearly a divine act, that that's partly what caused Sergius Paulus to believe and to, and to trust in God as they preach the word to him. So the first obstacle or difficulty they encountered was Elimus. But then the second obstacle that they encountered in chapter 13, verse 35, was the Jews who began to oppose them. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And then in verse 50, a little further, but the Jews stirred up the devout and the prominent women and the chief men of the city and raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So imagine now you're, you've gotten this call from God. You're just all, like all emboldened and empowered and you're like, man, I heard the voice of God. It was so cool. And you go out and what do you do? Opposition, opposition, opposition. And people want to kill you in the second or the third place you go to preach the name of Jesus and they're seeking to hurt you. Well, number three through six we're going to see today there's another encounter with a a strong group of unbelieving Jews. That would be obstacle number three. And we'll go through these uh, in, in detail. Obstacle number four, we're going to see that a city became divided resulting in a violent attempt on their lives. Obstacle number five, we're going to see another city defying Paul and Barnabas and trying to worship them as gods. And then number six, of course, as we read, Paul was stoned. Can't get much more opposition than that. Being stoned and left for dead, being presumed dead. So here in chapter 14, now it happened, verse 1 in Iconium, that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. So Luke, getting right to the point here as he gives us this accounting, they arrived in this next city, Iconium. They went to the synagogue, which was their practice. They go right in. They begin to speak to the synagogue, to those who had gathered there. And it says that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. What an amazing thing, how they must have been just ecstatic to see the fruit of God's word as they were speaking the word of God and people were believing in Christ and turning from their sin and from their wicked ways and trusting in God. But as they spoke that, verse 2, we see here, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, listen, and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Now you think what's going on in the world of politics is bad? The constant lying and bickering and all of that? I mean, this is, that's not life and death. This is life and death. This is salvation. This is the truth of God's word. And so the unbelieving Jews uh, rose up as this obstacle to Paul and Barnabas. And it says it, it, they tried to poison their minds 
And we aren't told what they were told or what they were saying, but obviously they were doing their best to convince the people that they were false prophets, they were false teachers, that the message that they had was incorrect and that it was actually a lie and not the truth. Who knows exactly what they were doing? But they were standing against the work of the Holy Spirit. But notice how they reacted to this obstacle in verse 3. Therefore, they stayed there a long time. You see, they basically just didn't give it much attention. They just, you know, they heard it and they went, yeah, that's okay. But we're going to stay here and we're going to continue to preach. And it says they were speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. You see, God stood with them. And God was in, in, uh, emboldening them and strengthening them to stand and to stand firm. With uh, your finger here, I want you to turn over for a moment to Ephesians chapter 6 because this passage came to my mind while I was studying. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, there's that passage that we know of as the warfare package, passage where it talks about the armor of God. And I'm going to read just verses 12 and 13 in Ephesians chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand." There's a few things about that, that passage that really piqued my interest as I was reading through here and thinking about the difficulties and the obstacles that they were encountering. One is, as we're told there in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's easy to think when someone's in your face and they're, they're cursing and they're swearing and they're standing against you and they're contradicting the things that you're saying. It's easy to think that that person is my real enemy. But the scriptures tell us we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities. So there's something behind that. There's a demonic force. There are spiritual, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places that are standing against us when we are doing the work of the Lord. And that's what was happening here. So there was, if you will, satanic opposition to the work of the Lord. And so they were standing in there. But listen, verse 13, and this is actually what really piqued my interest as he talked about taking up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And here's the phrase that got me. And having done all to stand. And I sat there for a while yesterday and just kind of went off on a half hour bunny trail of like studying, what does this phrase mean about having done all to stand? And I believe it's referring to this, that God has given us armor. He's given us weapons. He's given us prayer and the word of God. He's given us the, 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 the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. He's given us all those things. He's given us prayer. He's given us uh, feet shod with the gospel of peace. And so when it says here, and having done all, that means We've done everything we know how to do that God has told us to do. We've taken advantage of that armor that we are praying 
And, and listen, when we encounter difficulty, when we encounter obstacles, not just in life, but especially in the work of the Lord, is our first instinct to pray? Maybe there's a few of you who are spiritual who do. But I know often that is not my first instinct, but that's where we need to be. You know, when we hit the thumb, the thumb with the hammer, when we have an accident with the car, when we encounter some difficulty, when we have something that just rubs us the wrong way, when we have conflict in the home, what is the first thing we ought to do? I submit to you, it, it, it's prayer. And whether we actually literally drop to our knees or we just take a moment and we stop and we take a deep breath and we just say, God, help me right now. Lord, Give me your heart. Give me your mind. Cleanse me, Lord. Fill me with your spirit that I might be the person you want me to be. And so when it says here, having done all to stand, I believe that's pointing us to the fact that God, first of all, we remember God is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that he has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, meaning that God has equipped us. He's given us his word. You may say, I don't feel very equipped. If you have one of these in your hand, then you're equipped. You want to know what the issue is in terms of having done all to stand? You need to read it. You need to let this be your guide. Let this be your instruction. So these unbelieving Jews coming back to our passage stood against them, but the Lord was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. You see, these men were not going around as miracle workers. They were going around as, as preachers of the gospel. And God gave them signs and wonders to bear testimony to the word of his grace. This is where people get off track today when, you know, in the church, when they go off in, in their, you know, Pentecostal charismatic circles, and they just start focusing on, on miracles. They get off track because God gave miracles. Yes, they're spiritual gifts that he gave to his church, but he gave them to, to bring glory to himself and primarily through the preaching of the word. The miracles authenticated the truth of the scriptures. So these unbelieving Jews were standing against them and it says, but the multitude of the city, verse 4, was divided. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. So they not only had these Jews standing against them, but they were stirring up people. Remember, they were poisoning their minds and they had created this, this segregated city that was standing against them. And we are told here, that when we, in verse 4, uh, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles, this is the first time Paul and Barnabas are called apostles. So you see that, that, that God in his grace and his mercy is now growing these gifts and he, he's giving those gifts in the church to other people. Paul is called an apostle, apostle Barnabas is called an apostle. And then in verse 5, it says, And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with the rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding region. So obstacle number four, after the poisoning of the mines and the stirring up and the standing against of the unbelieving Jews, now they took action and they were trying to find a way to work violence against them and ultimately, it says, to abuse and to stone them. So I would say those are pretty big obstacles. 
when you're trying to serve God and you're trying to go to these cities and bring the light and the truth and the word of his grace to people and yet what you're met with, yes, there's some who receive it and that's a wonderful thing, but there's also those who stand in opposition. And if you've ever had anything like that, it feels so real. It feels like there's more against you than, than for you in those moments. And yet the Lord was there strengthening them. And it says they became aware of it and they fled to Lystra and Derby. So they were no longer welcome there. And so they just move on to the next place. Lord, what's next for us? Okay, there's a road going this direction. We'll just go down this road because it leads to another city. So in verse 8, And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. So they walk from one ministry situation right into another. And this man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed. So now we're in the the Roman province, the area of Galatia, about 18 miles southwest of Iconium. So Paul is there, he's speaking. We're not told if he's actually in a synagogue at this point. There probably wasn't one there. So he's speaking in whatever venue where he could get people together. And as he's speaking, there was this crippled man there. And we're told that he was crippled from his mother's womb, so he had never walked. And that means his muscles were atrophied, his bones probably were never fully formed, and we've certainly dealt with these Issues with our daughter, Rebecca, where the density of your bones, because you're not bearing weight, they just don't develop and they become brittle. And so this man was sitting there listening, and Paul, as he was looking around the room while he was speaking and teaching, it says, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed. There was something in that moment. As he looked in that man's face, as he looked at his eyes, God gave Paul discernment. And he could see that that man was was ready, that he was ripe, that he wanted to believe. And seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said with a loud voice, so imagine now in the middle of the sermon, whatever he's doing, all of a sudden he just kind of fixates on this guy and he speaks with a loud voice. And he says, stand up on your feet, stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and walked. And you get the sense here of an immediacy, that as Paul spoke those words, there was a command of God that was going forth from him and through him to this man. And this man, as we are told, had faith to be healed and he believed and he leaped and he walked. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, Now, this is Luke's account, but the people were looking at this thinking, Paul did this. And they're going to have to go to great lengths to explain, it wasn't me, it was the Lord, right? When the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, you might say, "What, what was this all about? These half-wild Lyconians had an ancient legend that Zeus and Hermes had once come to the hill country disguised as mortals seeking lodging. Though they asked a thousand homes, no one would take them in. And finally, at a humble cottage of straw and reeds, a poor elderly couple named Philemon and Bacchus freely welcomed them and feasted with them 
uh, with what meager means they had and, and appreciation, the gods transformed the cottage into a temple, making the couple priest and priestess. And when they died, they were immortalized as a great oak and a great linden tree. The inhospitable homes, however, were, were destroyed. And these poor Lyconians were determined not to make the same mistake again. So they had this superstition based on this fable or this myth that the gods had come down to visit them and they basically didn't recognize it. And you can almost see, right, how Satan is counterfeiting here because doesn't it tell us a little later in the New Testament that people were unaware as angels came to, to visit them? So you can see that there's this sort of parallel darkness to these stories. And it says, And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they uh, called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Uh, Barnabas as uh, Zeus or Jupiter, the chief of the gods, and Paul the speaker they identified with Mercury or Hermes as the messenger of the gods. And so they immediately thought they must be Zeus and Hermes. These men are an incarnation or a reincarnation of that fable that they believed. And then the priest of Zeus, because there was a temple there to Zeus, and there was a priest in that temple whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, so they were unaware, this commotion was taking place, and then they became aware they were coming to build a bonfire and to sacrifice to them recognizing them, honoring them as gods. It says they tore their clothes and they ran in among the multitudes. They went right into the middle of the commotion, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. We're just men. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things. Now imagine right in the middle of all this, telling them that their faith and their religion was just a bunch of bunk. I mean, those are fighting words, right? Turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. Because they're in a place that doesn't have a temple and they're not preaching to Jews, they can't appeal from the Old Testament scriptures, so they appeal to them from what they know, which is creation, which is seeing what is around them. And he says there... uh, To the living God who made the heaven, he made the earth, he made the sea and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. So this next obstacle we see that they encountered here was now this, the whole thing took a left-hand turn. They're preaching the gospel, they healed a man, and now they are seeking to deify them, to call them gods, to worship them as gods. And this is, this is just getting really crazy because they are there to tell them about the one true and living God, yet they are being called gods. So this whole thing has gotten flipped on its ear. And you may remember in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 18, the story of Elijah, and I'll just read this one verse to you. And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. And you remember right after that, that was where the 450 prophets of Baal came. And there was this great sacrifice and Elijah stood there and he waited all day while they tried to call their gods down from heaven, which of course were not real. 
And you get the same idea that this is, this is sort of what was happening here in this situation where Paul and Barnabas are there and they're preaching the gospel and they've healed this man and now they think that Paul and Barnabas are gods. But just to make sure our, our minds are in the right place, in Psalm 115, in case you're ever wondering about this, it's, there's many places in the Old Testament talking about idolatry and idols. But in Psalm 115, listen to this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And so idolatry is always about stealing God's glory and giving it to whatever the thing is that's being worshipped. But to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. So anytime you encounter someone who's worshiping an idol... And many people are, aren't they? Maybe they don't have a little gold idol or a little Buddha or whatever on their shelf. But make no mistake, everyone who does not know Christ has an idol somewhere in their lives. Maybe it's themselves. But they are worshiping false gods. They are deceived. And as Paul continues to preach here in verse 17, it says, Nevertheless, he, that is God, did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. That's a good verse to underline if you ever kind of forget the goodness of God in your life. The fact that God gives you the very food that's on your table, whether you grew it or not. God gives you the water that's coming through the pipes of your house. You have indoor plumbing, praise God for that. Anybody ever used an old-fashioned outhouse? You do that once or twice and you're so thankful for a regular bathroom, right? God has filled our hearts with food and gladness. James says, every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights who is above And with these sayings, verse 18, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So even though they're doing the right thing, and they're trying to tell them, listen, they've torn their clothes. They're standing against, they're saying, we're not gods, we're just men. We're here to tell you about the one true living God. Even though they've done the right thing, they've pointed the glory back to God, these people are determined to sacrifice to them and elevate them to the place of being a god. Now, two verses out of Isaiah, there's, again, many places we could go for this. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. In Isaiah 48, 11, something very similar. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another? Paul knew these things. Barnabas knew these things. And they wanted to stay as far away as possible from anyone confusing them with with being a god. 
They did not want to be worshipped. They did not want anyone to give them glory. And these are good words of advice for us, aren't they? If anyone ever sees something good in us, and we have the, maybe we have the great privilege of preaching the gospel or sharing the good news with someone, and then they believe. And then they want to just, you know, thank you and all of that. And it's like, well, hey, you know, it's okay. Uh, but give thanks to the Lord. I'm just a messenger. I'm just a servant. I'm here for his glory. The ultimate thing is that you believed in him, that you're now his son and his daughter. So don't take the glory. And then in verse 19, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. So now they're tracking down Paul and Barnabas. They had enough of them in the other place, but they decided we got to make sure we find these guys and let them know that they are not welcome, whether it's in a city 30 miles away or our city, they're not welcome in this region. So the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they jumped right in and took advantage of the situation. They threw a little gas on the fire. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. I would say that's an obstacle, wouldn't you? Not only that people want to kill you, but they did their best to kill you. Paul was stoned. He was left for dead. But let's don't miss this. God was not done with Paul. And there's a principle here, and we've seen it many times in the scriptures. Here's the principle. You are protected by God until his divine clock runs out. If God has something for you to do, if he has a a calling upon your life, if he's given you a word, if he's given you a task. And listen, we're all given the task of the Great Commission, right? We're all given the task of serving God in some way. But remember, God had called Paul and he had given them, them this commission. And remember at the beginning of chapter 13, you know, I've commissioned them for this work that I've called them to do. They're in the middle of that work. They're doing that work faithfully. God wasn't done with Paul. And he was stoned. Now you don't have to think too hard to visualize in your mind what that would be like. A big group of people encircles someone. You put the the person that you hate or that you're trying to kill in the middle. And it's a free-for-all. Everybody, you know, think about Dunk the Clown only with rocks. And you're not throwing it at a target, you're throwing it at the person. So Paul is stoned. I can't imagine the pain and the agony of those stones hitting you. You're standing out there with no protection and they're just hitting you from every direction, in the head, in the side, in the shoulders, in the, in the legs. And Paul was stoned and left for dead. No doubt he was a bloody mess. No doubt he was bruised. No doubt he had welts and bumps all over him. Many believe that this was the situation and this is just theory, it's just speculation, but this is the situation that Paul experienced in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, that he's referring to rather. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. That's this situation we're reading about here. But then in chapter 12, you may recall this story that Paul told. He sort of told it in third person, but 
We do understand that it's about him. He said, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, and I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, and that would have been about the right time frame for this situation, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which are not lawful for a man to utter. Now again, we don't know that to be the case, but certainly this would probably be the time. You know, he was stoned, he was left for dead, and he was probably teetering, teetering on the edge of death. We're not told here that he actually died, but because we're said here, said here rather, supposing him to be dead. And then in verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, now these are the people that Paul had been preaching to. This is this little homely band of people who believed in the one true and the living God. When they gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Wow. Now, we aren't told what they did when they gathered around him, but I would presume that they were weeping and that they prayed and they were just crying out to God. And the Lord, we aren't told it, it's implied here, but the Lord raised him up. For who can raise up someone from the dead but the Lord? Whether he was dead or not, we'll leave that up to the Lord to sort out one day and put it on your list of questions to ask God when you get to heaven. But the disciples gathered around him. Now, all throughout our time here in the book of Acts, I've been using a term here and there called essential church. Now, wouldn't you say this is essential church? When someone is hurt, when they're beaten, when they're downtrodden, that others in the church should come alongside and gather around that person and that we should pray for that person when they are down, when they're defeated, when they're hurting. This is, this is the essence of the church. And when we become aware of it, we, we should be quick to rush to their aid. And I hope that we will do that. I hope that will sort of awaken within you. And it doesn't matter whether you come to this church or not. If you're in the church, capital C, this is what we do. We support those whom God loves. Because if God loves them, we need to love them as well. Now think of how powerful something like this can be if you become aware of this in the life of a person who doesn't know Christ. And that we, the church, could come and gather around that person and pray for them and show them love, just like um, Renee was talking about in the video uh, that we saw just a little bit earlier, you know, just gathering around them and loving them. So these disciples, when they came around Paul, you know, maybe they were on the outskirts and they were powerless because they were outnumbered by the crowds. Maybe they were afraid and they weren't even there and they waited till the crowd had dispersed and come up and they saw this lifeless body laying there in a little heap. Either way, God ministered to them and through them. And it says that he rose up and went into the city. I can't even imagine that he could stand up and walk after that beating and the next day, he's well enough to travel. Now, these guys weren't getting on a train. They're not getting in the car. They're walking. They're getting back on that bumpy trail 
traveling to the next place. How do you stop people like that? They encounter obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. Paul said in Galatians 6, so remember they're in the region of Galatia, and this is a letter that he no doubt wrote later to them, and it says, Galatians 6, 17, From now on let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul also wrote in a similar way, 2 Corinthians 4, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. I don't know, I thought he was crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. When I read this passage in Acts 14, I think, man, this passage in 2 Corinthians 4 comes alive. It helps us understand what Paul went through. And listen, Paul was an ordinary guy. We may want to somehow elevate or escalate Paul to the level of a superhuman or to some, you know, athlete who, you know, who can, can run the 40 in, you know, three seconds. This is not Paul. Paul's just this short little Jewish man who, you know, has a weepy eye and he's, he's you know, from what we're told, he's fairly ugly. People didn't like looking at him. And yet here he is. God's using him in this amazing, powerful way. I'm always amazed by the story of, uh, who is the man, sinners in the hand of an angry God, is it Jonathan Edwards? We are told, historically, that this man had Coke bottle glasses. And he didn't preach, he wrote out his sermons, and he read them word for word, like you're reading a history book, Okay. And this man, when he stood up and he read his sermons and he stood bent over with his glasses trying to read it, as he's reading his sermons, people are coming, 10,000 people in a, in a pasture, coming down, weeping, getting saved. And there's nothing dynamic about this man. It's the power of God. It's the gospel. It's the spirit of God. You see, it's not the man, it's not Paul the man, it's not Barnabas the man, it's not Jonathan Edwards the man, it's the Spirit of God. And that's what was happening here. And when they had preached the gospel, verse 21, to that city, so Paul gets up and he had, I mean, he had to be a sight to see, right? After all of that, I mean, I, I don't think God made it all go away. We're told that Jesus in his resurrected state still bore the marks of his crucifixion. Why would we think Paul all of a sudden had baby skin again when in fact he had been beaten and left for dead? So he goes into this city uh, and, pre and preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. You see, that was their mission, wasn't it? The Great Commission, making disciples. And so they were committed to that and there was nothing that was going to deter them from that, not even death, not even the worst beating you can imagine. 
And it says, and they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Wait a minute. You went back to those places that kicked you out? That rose up against you? That poisoned the minds of people against you? Who threatened to stone you? You got stoned in this city. Those people, you went back to the city where they were threatening to stone you, Paul? Yes, we went back, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. This is what we need to hear. You need to be exhorted. You need to be encouraged. We need to continue in the faith. We need to persevere. And notice what he said. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Circle that. Highlight it. Underline it. Put it on your Facebook. Get it out there. This is the truth. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. One commentator said, this is a forgotten message today. Many people consider any kind of tribulation completely counterproductive to Christian living, falling to note the significant place that suffering has in God's plan. We think when we suffer, when we go through difficulty, when we encounter obstacles and trials, that God's against us. Right? How many times I go, oh God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Because through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You know, we forget that we live in a sin-filled world. We live in a fallen world. And so often things happen to us simply because we live in a fallen world. Not because God is mad at us. Not that he's doing something to us. You know, he might, he reserves that right to bring judgment and correction and discipline when we need it. But a lot of times it's just the outworking of the world. You get in your car, go down the road, have a flat tire. Ah! And that's just life. These guys were suffering for the sake of the gospel. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I think every time I read this, and for any pastor or or elder or leader, when you read this, you're like, what? These guys just had been believers for like three weeks. And they're appointing them as elders? Hey, Fred, you're, you're now the pastor of the church. God bless you, brother. Really? But it was the work of the Lord. They appointed the elders in the church not only out of necessity, not only out of pragmatism, but because the Lord had ordained that they do these things and they prayed with fasting. They sought the Lord. And then they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, they really did here in verse 43, similar to what happened to them way all, all the way back almost a year earlier, and we believe this first missionary journey took them about a year. Remember, they were in the, in the upper room, the five of them there, and they were waiting upon the Lord, ministering to the Lord, praying, fasting, and the Holy Spirit spoke. So now they're doing pretty much the same thing as they are appointing elders in every church. And as they commended them to the Lord, understand something. Their faith was not fickle. They weren't throwing around platitudes like, you know, well, just have faith and believe. They really meant it. They were commending them to the Lord. You see, they had no choice but to trust God. 
Because God had used them to preach the gospel and establish the churches, but they themselves couldn't stay. So what they did is they prayed and they said, Lord, you've got to raise somebody up here. You've got you to bring somebody along. It's like, yeah, I know you're a believer for a month, but God has his hand on you and you need to trust God just like we trust God. And so they commended them to the Lord. They, trust, they trusted in God. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And now uh, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So they came all the way back now to Antioch in Syria. And when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. These two men, when they were sent out, remember when they went, they had John Mark as their assistant, but after they just made that first little leg down through the island of Cyprus, John Mark had left them. We're not told why, but we'll find out at the end of chapter 15 why or get some idea. But it was just these two guys. And if you were to put this in modern day terms, you get a couple of guys with their backpacks trekking across Europe, probably some scrolls, a couple of wineskin water bags, maybe some raw granola. And what are they doing? They're like, I don't know, we're just going to trust God and see what happens. We're just going to go to the next city and preach and see what happens. And these obstacles came upon them as they went and as they preached and as they traveled. And so they got the church together and they told them all that God had done and how he had opened the door of faith to all the Gentiles. And they were, no doubt, rejoicing. And it says they stayed there a long time with the disciples. One commentator put it this way. He said, others have done so much with so little while we have done so little with so much. These guys went with the clothes on their back, the joy of the Lord in their hearts, and they preached the gospel. And even when they encountered difficulties, even when they hit obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, they didn't stop. Why? Because of who God was in their life. Because God had called them, God had commissioned them, God had said that this is the most important message that the world needs to hear. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 said, But you have followed carefully my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance. On the next journey, they're going to pick up Timothy. My persecutions, my afflictions, what happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me, 2 Timothy 3.11. Underline that, circle that, highlight that. Out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Persecution or obstacles. Their example and their personal call to commitment is reminiscent of the sentiment expressed by Winston Churchill when he said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. 
The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Pointing out the fact that so often people like to criticize, but they've never taken a step into the wild blue yonder themselves. And so we have here the sorcerer Elimus who opposed them. We have the Jews who opposed them. We have the unbelieving Jews who stirred up and poisoned the minds of the unbelieving. We have the city divided against them, resulting in a violent attempt on their lives. We have the city defying Paul and Barnabas, trying to worship them as gods. And then we have Paul stoned and left for dead. And this is just the first journey. This is just the first trip where Paul said, hey, I wonder what would happen if we go over here and preach the gospel. You see, we persevere through obstacles not because of our indomitable American spirits, not because of our intestinal fortitude, but because of the Spirit of God, because of the Word of God, because He loves you, and because He's called you, and because He has redeemed you, and He's given us the most important message that the world needs to hear. And if, we, if anything happens to us in the course of the journey, and I'm not talking about the daily struggles and stuff that happens to us, because that happens to all of us, doesn't it? We all have a story to tell, a tale to tell of how much difficulty we encountered in our week and how someone got mad at us because we cut them off in traffic or whatever it might be. But the gospel, serving God, you know, we, we are deterred so easily it might rain, so I'm not going to church. It might snow, I'm not going to church. I mean, the weather, I mean, come on. When you read Acts 13 and 14, and we read, and, you know, we're just in the middle, we're just in missionary journey number one. When we see what they encounter just to, to get to someone and preach the gospel, and yet we're like, that's eh, not convenient. I don't know, I think we need to do some self-examination. Because if it takes literally nothing to keep me from coming to church to worship God and to be with his people. And listen, it's not about numbers. It's about being the people. It's about being the church of God. It's about being faithful to him. If there's, if there's so little that can deter me from that, how are we going to stand in the face of someone when we're sharing the gospel and they get mad at us? Are we going to turn and walk away with our tail tucked between our legs? These men are examples for us. And their example is trust the Lord, be filled with the Spirit, and don't let anything stand in your way. Because God is our witness. God is the one who's bringing the empowering. God has done the calling. God has done the equipping. And so we persevere through obstacles because of the faithfulness of God. Not because of who I am. Not because I can do anything. Look, Paul was stoned. He got up went back into the city, cleaned himself up, went to the next city and continued to preach. And then he went back to the same cities that threatened to kill him. 
I don't know. God help us. God help me. Because the gospel is important. It's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, to also to the Greek. And he said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. God help us if we're ashamed of the gospel. I hope we're not. So Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the truth. God, we, we need it. We need your help. We need you to stir us up, God. We let so little deter us from doing the things you've put in front of us. God, help us to let this be an eye-opening experience this morning. Lord, give us a resolve to draw near to you, to stay close to you, to let you fill us with your love, fill our hearts with your spirit. And Lord, give us the faith of Barnabas and Paul that we might be faithful just as they were faithful. Lord, for those who may be here this morning or listening who have never trusted in in you, Jesus, we ask that this could be for them their moment where they turn and they say, Lord, I, I believe. Be merciful and gracious to me, a sinner. And that you would enter their lives right now and that they would believe and receive and become your son or your daughter. And that their life would be forever changed, that they would be redeemed. And that they would have this same joy and commitment and confidence that Paul and Barnabas had. And Lord, as we now come to your table and we partake, we trust that you will minister to us as we remember and remind us of how much you love us because of how you demonstrated your love through the cross, through your son, who gave up everything, who suffered the ultimate sacrifice that we might be redeemed. We love you and we bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.